Hello everybody, this is Josh Como. I just want to take a moment to introduce this episode. I had the pleasure of interviewing Eric Taylor. Eric Taylor is the founder of Salon Republic. Salon Republic is a studio-based salon which allows Harris Alice to be their own boss and take charge of their career. His story is one of patience and persistence, and I look up to this guy for everything he has done for the industry. I hope you enjoy it. And you learn a lot because I did. So thank you very much for listening. I appreciate it. It means the world to me. Enjoy. Sweet. All right, everybody. We have a very special episode today. We have Mr. Eric Taylor online. I'm happy to say he's the host of the Hair Game Podcast and the founder of Salon Republic. How are you today, my man? I'm doing great, Josh. How are you? Oh, I'm doing wonderful. Uh, you know, running the roads is big Monday morning. Uh, my first question: You okay with the fire? I just I saw they had one of the four or five this morning. Yeah, my wife told me about that. I did not exactly see the details of the fire, but you know the four or five area—that's a very, very busy, congested area. And so, of course, we hope that that fire does not grow very big. Yeah, this is crazy. Yeah, we uh, we had some last week, though. You know, it's almost like we we get used to them around here. Yeah, it's not it's not as alarming unless you're right by it, right? <laughs> I guess I guess that's true. However, when there when there are fires, you know, it uh, clogs up the air quite a bit and spreads around the city. So you know whether there's a fire, uh, even if it's not close to you. Yeah, my uh, I'm I've just recently moved to California in May, and I was fine. And all of a sudden, in the last couple of weeks, my allergies been jumping up like the less like they said humidity is less than ten percent. It's crazy. Huh. Where, where are you from? But, uh, Lafayette, Louisiana. Okay, so was, I'm from Dallas. Oh. And yeah, and, and the, uh, the the allergens in the South are much worse than they are here in LA. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's just the dry. I'm not used to the dryness. <laughs> I think I think that's the case because it is a lot drier here. So, uh, well, how long you been in California for? In 1994, to go to Pepperdine University, I played baseball on the Pepperdine baseball team, uh, which won the College World Series in 92. I got recruited in 93, showed up in 94, went to college, studied finance until 98. And I then moved back to Dallas and uh, was in Dallas for about a year and a half. That's where I learned the salon business. And then I moved back out to L.A. in like 99, like mid-99. Now, now, when you say learn the salon business, you, you worked in a salon? Or I did. You... I did. So I, I studied finance at Pepperdine, and both of my parents are entrepreneurs. I always knew that I wanted to do something entrepreneurial, and uh so I started looking. I started looking for different things that I could do probably halfway through college. Um, and it's, there's not a lot of businesses where a college student or somebody soon after college could make an impact, could even get involved in any real way. Um, so I looked at various things like, you know, car washes. I looked at the dry cleaning business. I looked at hair salons and maybe a couple others I don't remember. And uh, the hair salon business struck me. I really, I liked everything about it. I think primarily because of my background. My background 
is essentially um, a, a kid getting raised by um, two entrepreneur parents. One, my mom was an artist, is an artist. Um, you know, that, it's a very entre entrepreneurial, very solitary path being an artist. Uh, so I grew up watching her uh, try to create and then, of course, sell her art. Um, she had a studio there in the house, so I saw that every single day growing up. My dad was a solo entrepreneur who owned uh, warehouses. And so I, I saw his path, you know, growing up. His office was also in the house. So my notion of how one makes a living is to start something, create something, whether it's art or a building, and then uh, be good at it enough to, you know, provide a service that is valuable enough that somebody's willing to pay you for it. And if you do a good job of that, then you've got a living. If you don't, then you've got no money. So this was, <laughs> this was kind of my notion. Um, and maybe because of the combination of the art from my mom and kind of the practicality of real estate from my dad, I thought the salon business was for me. I love the fact that it combined art and kind of the necessity of, of uh, people having to get their hair cut. And, you know, the practicality of that seemed to make a really good business. And so I, I kind of started looking around at the salon industry as a whole a couple of years before I graduated. And then how it actually formed into my career was I was fortunate enough that the girl that I was dating at the time when I moved back to Dallas after graduating from college, her hairstylist moved to a salon that was one of the first studio concept salons. In other words, um, the salon was not an open room with a bunch of stations and the hairstylist working shoulder to shoulder. The salon was a collection of private studios that um, were occupied by the hairstylists, by the beauty service providers um, in such a way that they could design the studio themselves and work in there independently. And uh, the first time that my girlfriend went and got her hair done uh, after her hairdresser moved to the salon, she came back and she said, you know, this is pretty amazing, my hairstylist has her own studio and she likes it so much better than a normal traditional salon. You got to go check it out. I was lucky enough that this place was five minutes from my parents' house. Cause I, I had moved back in with my parents. Right. Cause I, you know, I shit for money and I didn't know anything. <laughs> and, <Smart man. laughs> I assume I can cuss on the show. You're from Louisiana. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. so, uh, you know, I'm living with living with my parents and, uh, my girlfriend tells me about the salon five minutes from my house. It sounds perfect, uh, you know, I, as far as combination between what I know, art and real estate. I went and checked it out, met the guy who developed the concept originally and worked with him for about a year for free. You know, I, he, right. he didn't have a budget to pay for anyone. And I probably didn't think that I had enough value to actually justify earning money from him. So I just hung around and he had me do, you know, various tasks around the salon. And, and I basically did that for a year. Um, and oh, this is in Dallas, correct? That, that, yeah, it's in Dallas. Yeah. Now, was this the first concept like in, in America? Yes. With the studio? Yep. Yep. So he started in 89. 
with this with this concept. And of course, now we know it as salon suites, right? Which um, I, uh, I, I, uh, it's not the best term for it. And, and so I don't use that term, but uh, they're really more artistic studios. They're not suites. Suites are, you know, when you go to a hotel and you rent a, a, a multi-room, you know, hotel room, that's called a suite because it has multiple rooms. When you take a studio in, at Salon Republic, you get one room. It could be of various sizes, but that's called a studio. So I call it the studio concept salon or, or studio salon. Um, but that was the beginning of, of kind of what most people know of as salon suites. Nice. So after that, like you said, you worked there one year, then you moved back to California? Yep. So um, uh, dumped the girlfriend and moved back to L.A., and, you know, I, I, I say that in jest. The reality is I asked her to move back with me and uh, she wanted me to engage her. And I said, I'm not going to I'm not going to get engaged. I'm like 22. I don't know anything. Yeah. I don't have any money. <laughs> you know, come on. So um, so that was the end of that. Moved back to L.A. I thought it was a really good place, both, of course, to live for me and a good place to put up a new type of salon like this. And so it took me. From the time that I landed back in L.A. to the time that I got my first salon open was probably a year, uh, maybe maybe a little bit more than a year, year and a half. Um, and I put up that first salon and we still have it. You know, it's that was 20 years ago since what was the first one at? Studio City, California. So it's just north of kind of the center of L.A., still considered L.A., but, uh, you know, L.A. is kind of a collection of suburbs and Studio City is is one of them. So you came back to California with the whole mindset of I'm going to do this concept. Yep. And nice. Now on on your first venture, did you have a business plan or yep. did you have outside investment or I you did it all on your own? I had a business plan. I had outside investment. Um, the the funny part of the whole story, with all of the benefit of hindsight now, is that my business plan was just an absolute disgrace. I mean, I, I had made all the mistakes necessary for someone stupid and young uh, trying to be an entrepreneur. For example, in the financial statement at the end of the business plan, I put expenses first and revenue last, which is, you know, the opposite of what you're supposed to do. And, and this is so embarrassing from the, from the standpoint of a finance major, but I did lots of, I did lots of dumb things, of course, um, but at the end of the day, I, I was able to, you know, raise the money necessary and get it off the ground. But, you know, there were probably, probably three years there where um, it was simply a collection of mistakes, but none of those mistakes were critical enough to, to sink me. So it was, it was successful. Do you mind, like, what was, like, your two... Like say the two mistakes that people can probably learn from the most. Sure. Because I think uh, it's like doing hair, right? Like once you make a mistake, you learn from your lesson and you won't do it again. Yeah. And it's like if you if you know what not to do, sometimes it leads you to what to do, right? Yeah, of course. So you know, one that I like to talk about probably the most is um, when I was having furniture delivered, salon furniture delivered to the salon. And this was, um, it was getting delivered 
you know, too late. Um, I was supposed to open in probably a matter of days. And I, I, had, uh, I had ordered enough shampoo bowls, enough styling chairs and such um, to, get us, to get us open. Um, and by the way, it was a, it was, at the time, it was a big salon. Now it's our smallest salon. But, you know, it's, <laughs> it's, it was 8,000 square feet. Um, we, I ordered 40 <laughs> shampoo bowls and 40 styling chairs and um, 40 shampoo chairs. And all of these chairs, they were, you know, I ordered them and they were going to get delivered on a particular day. And I was there on that day and I was standing at the salon waiting for the, uh, all the furniture to be delivered. And I get a phone call from the delivery man and he's like, okay, I'm here, you know, come get him." And I'm like, yeah, okay, I'm here in the salon, bring him in. And he's like, uh, well, no, you know, come out to the street because that, that's where I'm dropping the, uh, the, the, the stuff. Understand it's 40 times three, right? So a hundred, yeah. <laughs> 120 boxes, big, heavy boxes. And he started unloading them right on Ventura Boulevard, very busy street, right on the <laughs> sidewalk, um, you know, with lots of, with probably 50,000 cars a day. And there's probably 3000 people a day walking down the sidewalk. He just unloaded these boxes onto the street, which became a wall of boxes that was probably eight feet high and maybe 200 feet long all across. And I was by myself. <laughs> and, you know, I didn't understand that I had to have somebody there to do that for me. I didn't understand that the shipping company was a kind of a, uh, like a, they just dropped it on the, on the curb. So I noticed in California, a lot of these trucks just park in a turn lane. And then like you yep. said, they just, <laughs> yep, that's right. And they, they don't bring it in. So I brought them all in over the course of several hours. I brought all the box. I think literally to this day, my back is, has never been the same. So, I believe that. you know, uh, you do stupid things like this and you, at the end of that day, that mistake I will never make again. Of course, you you take the general nature of why I made that mistake, was which is just not looking into the detail of executing the the furniture close enough, and then you expand into you know everything else. Like when when I'm getting the floor laid uh, in the salon, you know I need to be there to make sure that the studio the the floor installer is installed floor exactly how I want it because if I'm not there paying attention they're going to do it wrong and if they do it wrong then that's going to make the studio not as good as it could be and if the studio is not as good as it could be then it's going to be harder for me to find good hairstylists you know to to make a career inside of the salon and if I have a hard time doing that then my business might, might fail and so you take that little example and you multiply it over the 150 different little details and aspects of running a business and you just do the best you can. You try to do it right. Yeah. And then what What I learned, too, is, uh, like, say you, in your, pro your process, you were opening it. You probably went through a lot of obstacles. But that it, it, every obstacle was to prep you for, like, patience, time management, uh, you know, how to handle stress. And, you know, like, not the whole not giving up aspect. Yeah. Because... At the end of the day, if you can't get through those, then you, have, you won't even be able to run the business. Yeah, so. that's right. So, the, you know, business, first of all, entrepreneurship, it's a very solid path, okay? 
Um, I mean, this is going to sound interesting, maybe a little, nobody really wants you to succeed. Okay. The, your, your buddies might be like, oh, that's really cool. But the, the better you do, the worse they're going to feel. Okay. A, most entrepreneurs have an idea that most people don't agree with. Okay, so when I say solitary path, I'm not talking about just the fact that you're sitting at the desk. I'm talking about from a psychological perspective. Most people aren't going to agree with you. But of course, that's what creates the opportunity. So when I saw this business happen in Dallas and I saw it working well, and I saw why it was working well, and then I came to LA and I was basically the only person that I encountered over the course of, let's say, two years who thought that it, it might actually work. I mean, my, my lawyer said it wouldn't work. My accountant said it wouldn't work. A lot of the hairstylists that I spoke to in the beginning said it wouldn't work. But you need to be able uh, being alone from a psychological and emotional perspective. Um, and that's hard for people. I think, yes. <laughs> you know, it's, it's definitely hard for most people. Um, I think that's one of the things that makes me a little bit different. People always ask me that, you know, what makes you different? I think it's the fact that I don't, I don't feel like I need to have support, you know, psychologically and emotionally from the people around me. I think I, I have a great deal of faith in, in my own thinking. Um, and if I think it through properly enough, then, uh, and it seems to make sense to me, regardless of what other people are thinking, um, you know, I, I, I'll agree with kind of what, what I'm, what, what I've kind of got going in my head. So well, it, let me ask you this real quick. Mm-hmm. Do you have conversations with yourself? Like, cause some people, oh, yeah. uh, from what I understand, like, I can talk to, like you just said, I talk to myself, like all the decisions. I think some people don't know how to have that conversation with themselves and make, you know, decisions. Yeah. No, I, I, I have conversations with myself all the time, every day, uh, on an ongoing basis. I have a conversation going on with myself right now. Like I'm (laughs) literally thinking to myself right now, did I just translate my thought properly through my words when, when I just said that? thinking that right now yeah it's constant I, I, yeah i think some people don't know how to do that and then it's like so they, they'll talk to other people and then other people like you said they'll give them doubt and then that's what makes them never pursue their original thought process so like if i have yeah. an idea i won't tell nobody until i have it like in motion hmm. you know? i think that makes sense yeah i mean i i think that there are going to be people in everyone's life who are going to be good for feedback and there's going to people there's going to be people who are not going to be good for feedback you know i mentioned you know your 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 buddy who maybe doesn't want you to succeed now he he doesn't come out and say he doesn't want you to succeed but just human nature has it that um, people are threatened by people people who are doing well because it it tends to make most humans feel worse about themselves if all the people around them are doing better, right? So yes. we all know those people 
uh, in our lives who are going to be more likely to give good, objective, healthy, helpful feedback and those who are less likely to do that. And it has nothing to do with the relationship to us. You know, mom, dad, whatever, you know, people may have moms and dads who maybe aren't going to give great feedback and that's okay. So find somebody who is going to give decent feedback. And, and if you don't have anybody like that, find someone in the community, you know, a local business person and just call them up and be like, Hey, can I have five minutes of your time? And then go in there and throw out the idea and see what they say. Now, that doesn't mean that you live or die on that feedback. But um, if, you, if you solicit feedback from good sources, then that feedback could have a lot of value. And I, I saw all the hairstylists out there. Being a hairstylist, you have unlimited resources. Because I have, a, like, my clientele consisted of somebody in every industry. And, like, I think you can use all these people because you have their time. So like, let's say you have a businessman, you're going to cut his hair for 30 minutes. You can ask him whatever you want. And if you show him interest, they are going to be excited and really talk about you and try to help you. Spot like, on. Like I, I, I've noticed that, you know, as soon as I, when I opened my uh, shop, like the businessmen respected me in a different way and they talked to me. And I was like, I was kind of offended of the jump. I was like, well, now you're going to talk to me, but, it wasn't, it was just like, I guess my ego, but I, I was, after I realized that they just had more respect, I was like, oh, okay. Like, but yes, I think once you, you start showing like interest, like people are willing to help, uh, especially like you said, the right ones. And I think sure. that's where you got to make the conscious decision. Yeah. Yeah. So when you had that, after you opened that first one, did you have stylists lined up to rent or like to, to lease? Well, we got probably 10 hairstylists to begin with. Those were kind of the, the pioneers, you might call them, kind of the first adopters, you know, if you read about, um, you know, the different types of customers. Um, first adopters, they're, they're the ones who, when the iPhone first came out, those were the ones who uh, camped outside the Apple store waiting for that first phone because it was something new and something novel um, and something that might not work, but that was exciting to them as first adopters, right? And in every market, you're going to have first adopters and then you're going to have people who, uh, you know, come right after the first adopters and then you're going to have the mass market and the mass market takes a lot longer, to adopt to a new idea. So in that same vein, we had probably 10 first adopters come in and then over the course of you know a year or so, um, some of those mass market types of um, uh, psychologies uh, decided that it was something that was worth trying out and they ended up coming in. So, you know, it took about a year to, to find the hairdressers, but we um, filled the salon with great hairstylists, and uh, I think we've got probably 50 hairdressers in there now and have had for about almost 20 years now. Now, did that first year feel like the longest year ever? <laughs> That's a good question. I, I mean, it was so long ago, but I'm, I'm going to transport myself back and in, into that mindset. I think that um, I, I don't think it did. I think that it was a very exciting time. It was 
I was in a process that I had been thinking about, that I'd been trying to get into for probably at that time, maybe two and a half to three years. So all of a sudden I was in it, trying to figure out, figure it out. Um, I was working in the salon probably 12 hours a day. Let's call it like 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Um, because there were things that I needed to do before everybody showed up to the salon. And there were things that I needed to fix after everybody left. Um, so I think that it actually went pretty fast. Um, I, I remember doing things, you know, ridiculous things. Like, for example, um, there was this girl I'd been trying to get to go out with me for a while. And she finally agreed. I took her to a sushi restaurant and I'm thinking to myself, I'm going to splash out on this, on this girl. I'm going to spend real money and I'm going to take her out. And I remember being at the sushi restaurant, sitting at the bar thinking that like, this is awesome. Like she's so pretty, like her so much. And then my phone rings and it was one of my hairstylists and it was probably 9 PM and it was one of my hairstylists and something had gone wrong in the salon. I think like the electrical circuit had popped or something like that. Um, again, because I made a mistake of not putting in enough uh, electricity and uh, she's like, you know, what do I do? I've got three clients here and all that. And I said, I'll be right there. And so I left the girl at the sushi bar, you know, I put down the money and um, I never saw that girl again, but that was, you know, the dedication that I had to making sure that this effort worked. And so that when you've got all, when you've got things, when you've got hoops that you have to jump through and difficulty and real sacrifice that you have to put in, um, there's a little bit of a um, single mindedness to it. And when you're that focused on something, time flies. That's, can you repeat that last phrase? Sure. When you've got a single-mindedness focus on something, time flies. Yes. Now, it was there ever a point where you, you, it, it wasn't working, and you felt bad, or like? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. So how'd I was. How did you get through it? So. Location number two, I opened location number two about three years after location number one. Location number one was doing reasonably well. And I felt like it was time to open location number two. And so I had to drum up the money and all that. I, I was saving money from location number one. So I had some money left over. I was still living in a really junky apartment and trying not to spend any money. And I opened location number two. This time it was in Beverly Hills. I thought that it was, you know, big time, super fancy. Um, that's where all the best hairstylists, some of the best hairstylists in the world were working. I understand this is you know, almost 20 years ago. Um, and I built a salon. I priced the, the salon a little expensive and people were not coming. And it was, it was bleeding money on a monthly basis. It was bleeding money. <laughs> and I remember on, it was a Saturday. I didn't have that many people working in the salon and it was a big salon. So it felt empty, right? And it was a fall day, kind of like where we are right now, you know, almost November. And the weather had turned, the leaves were 
turning colors and falling off the trees and blowing down the street. And I remember leaving the salon to go to lunch and there was not a soul on the street. And the leaves were blowing down the street, kind of like in a very, you know, empty, uh, in an empty movie. (laughs) Exactly. You couldn't have scripted it any better in a movie. It was just fucking depressing. It was. And I remember, and at the time, I mean, I was losing an amount of money every month that I didn't have. And so I'm walking down the street and, and I had a, what, what I call now a threshold of control moment. And, and I didn't come up with this term. I read it somewhere. I forgot where I read it. But um, actually, it might have been a might have been from Ray Dalio's last book. Ray Dalio's a hedge fund manager who wrote a really great book called Principles. And uh, and there's two aspects of the book. He's got principles about life and principles about business. And in the book, he talked about threshold of control. And it's a great way to define what I was feeling at that moment. And and I've since felt a few more times. And if anyone, you know, endeavors to do something difficult, like start business or anything like that, they're, they're almost certain to encounter so a threshold of control moment is a moment in which you um, there's difficulty and there's stress and anxiety, and it's kind of like an inflection point. And your amygdala in your brain, which is our fight or flight um, aspect of our brain, is telling the rest of our brain to be scared and to run. Okay, and so we need to very consciously decide, am I going to um, wallow in fear and anxiety right now? Or am I going to um, use my mental capacity to figure out what's going on and fix it in a very pragmatic way? That's a threshold of control moment. And so as I'm walking down the street and the leaves are blowing and I'm bleeding money, um, <laughs> You know, I could have uh, wallowed in fear and anxiety and done something like just go home and watch TV and try to ignore it to make myself feel better. Or, um, you know, and, 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 or, you know I, and that's kind of a form of panicking. When it comes to business, if you just check out, right? If things have gotten so difficult and y- you, haven't, uh, you haven't figured out how to fix it, you know, a way of panicking and running from the situation. Um, that's, that's like panicking, right? Okay. Um, or you can just dig in and figure the shit out. So at that moment, I, of course, decided that I was going to dig in and figure the shit out. Now, what did, what did that mean from a detailed uh, perspective? That meant that I needed to kind of go back in my mental memory into all of my conversations with the hairstylist who did not decide to work in the salon. Why didn't they decide to work in the salon? Is it too expensive? Is it in the wrong location? What do I need to try to get them to work in the salon? Should I lower prices? Should I change the way the salon looks inside? Should I change some of the processes um, by which we run the salon. For example, do I need to keep the salon open longer? You know, do I need to have somebody at the front desk more? Do I need to present a different sort of image, right? 
So dig in and figure the shit out. And so what I, you know, it, with, with the benefit of hindsight, um, I changed a little bit of the, for example, I changed the clothes that I wore. Um, I started dressing a little bit more like me, which is, uh, you know, I started wearing t-shirts and, and jeans versus nicer clothes. Cause I thought it was Beverly Hills. I thought I had to look nice, but that was the <laughs> wrong image. I looked at the pricing of other salons in the area and realized that I was too expensive. Um, I changed the way that I was marketing um, in the, in the area to the hairstylist. I changed the way that I was um, doing my, you know, sales to them. I, to, I changed the things that I was focusing on when I was talking to them. And I changed a little bit of how the salon was functioning. And, and, and I didn't do this all at once, right? I did one at a time to see what was working. And over the course of six months, it started working. And then all of a sudden I went from 10 hairstylists to 20 hairstylists and I wasn't bleeding, you know, $20,000 a month. I was bleeding $10,000 a month. Right. And then yeah. you keep going and you keep going and you keep going, trudging uphill in the snow, so to speak. And then one day I've got 30 hairstylists in there and guess what? I'm not losing any money. Uh, per month, right. <laughs> and, and then over the course of the, the next year, all of a sudden, I, you know, I've got 50 hairstylists in there and I'm making $10,000 a month, right? So it's, that is the process of business. It is, it's long, it's hard, it requires patience, it requires adaptation, and it requires, um, it, it requires two things, uh, particularly from the entrepreneur. One, it requires a great deal of um, honesty about the situation. So at that moment, at that threshold of control moment, I needed to be very honest about the circumstances, right? Um, no room for delusion. A lot of people like to delude themselves and make themselves feel like everything is okay. That is absolutely a recipe for disaster. Okay, you have to be very honest about the situation. I only have 10 hair saws. I am bleeding money. Like shit is not working right. And then I need to go in and very honestly look at maybe why it's not working right. Okay, so that's number one. You need to be brutally honest about your circumstances. And two, you need to believe that in the end, you will succeed. So you need to have these two thoughts simultaneously in your head. Yeah. Um, in order to give yourself the best opportunity to um, to do well, I, I strongly believe that if you have to believe in yourself, like that's the number one key, and that, that's faith. And then faith don't work unless you do, right? Yeah. And then uh, <laughs> but, it, do I? But you gotta have it at the same time. You have to be very honest about the situation, right? You can't have one or the other because uh, th they both have to work together right if you just have confidence in yourself without the awareness the, the 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 ability to see clearly what's going on you're never going to figure your shit out and you're going to fail well i like that <laughs> and that's like numbers don't lie right so like yeah pull out your spreadsheet take out the uh 
take your time and, and, and budget it. There you go. And, and guess what? When you do that, by the way, because I know this is, the, this is a vulnerability for a lot of people, you're, it's not going to feel good. No. <laughs> it feels like shit. Feels really, you're losing money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It well, you know, we're talking about a threshold of control moment, right? We're tra- talking about a friction point, and so just naturally, by definition, there's going to be difficulty, and it's going to feel bad. I think a lot of people think that if they start feeling bad, then they need to uh, do a 180 and move towards something that makes them feel better. That 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 is not helpful. Right. You, you need to get into that kind of feeling that the feeling bad, whatever is feeling bad. And you need to figure it out until you're not feeling bad. Use that, as a, use that as a motivational tool. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Because and then let's say, you know, how you just said uh, you do the 180, you're going to run into the same problems the next route you take if you don't take the, the right steps. Yep. So. But uh, nice. Uh, uh uh, I'm sure that so that whole process of that second salon that was for it to become profitable it was like a year year and a half something like that so that puts you at five years total yep. in in the grand scheme of things right and that's what I, I'm uh, five years is it's a long it's a long time when you're in it yeah. but it's a very short time in the grand scheme of things true and that's what some people can't get over is that 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 five year mark right like, right. Uh, Especially like if you build on clientele, or in your case, you were building a, a big business. Yeah. Now, what point did you start uh, Salon Three? Salon. So let's see. Salon Two. Once we got that going and healthy financially, it was mid two thousands. I, I want to call it two thousand six, something around there. And uh, those of your listeners who are old enough, who were adults in the working world then, um, remember that in 2006, things were going really well in the economy, right? Yeah. Uh, unemployment was low. Uh, inflation was you know, increasing uh, in a healthy way. In the real estate market, uh, things were very inflationary. So real estate, uh, um, sorry, commercial real estate, you know, retail space and things like that, uh, even residential houses, especially residential houses, were getting really expensive. So, of course, this was kind of we were in the middle of the of the housing bubble. Right. Yeah. Things were very expensive. I could not afford to rent a, a retail space to expand my business, to build another salon. It was just too expensive. There were uh, spaces that I now have salons in. And the landlords at that time in 2006 were asking for double the rent that I eventually uh, (laughs) got that space for. So I couldn't expand. And I was literally thinking to myself, hmm, okay, well, maybe this run is over. Uh, I've got two salons and maybe I need to, I don't know, figure something out. So I I literally thought about um, going to cosmetology school and I thought about getting my MBA. Um, And I don't really know why I didn't do either. I think it might have literally come down to laziness. But (laughs) I'm serious. I, I think that I was... I think that I thought that from a practical 
perspective, those were smart things to do, but I was making, you know, a reasonable amount of money. I was making a living and I had a little bit of free time, you know, cause I was the boss. Right. So um, I was doing a lot more surfing at that time than I was doing anything else. I, I remember <laughs> I was going with some buddies uh, to Indonesia and Hawaii and uh, Central America to, to do a lot of surfing. And I, I kind of did that until the economy took a shit in 2008. And then in 2009, um, all of a sudden, you know, things went on sale. Now, down to get back to your original question, uh, when did I start number three? In late 2008, when things were starting to look down, I got a phone call from a guy who I had helped open a couple salons, like Salon Republic, um, in Dallas and Austin. Okay, so I had moved to LA and I got a phone call from this guy and he's like, hey, you know, I, I like your salons. Can you help me? you know, open a couple of salons. And I figured being in LA, I figured Dallas and Austin, yeah, no big deal. I'll help this guy out. Well, he was quite a bit older and um, I helped him build these salons, but he came down with prostate cancer. And so in late 2008, he called me and he said, look, I'm going to die. And right. um, I, but I've got these two salons and I appreciate you helping me open them. And you, would you like to buy them? And, and I said, well, I, I don't have that much money. I'm a little bit, you know, I've been saving up, but I don't have enough to buy a year two salons. And he said, well, I'll, I'll lend you the money to buy them. And, you know, you pay me back over, you know, a number of years. And so I said, okay. So I bought those two salons from him in 2008, early 2009. One in Dallas, one in Austin. I still have those wow. salons. They're fantastic. And um, did you brand those as a summer republic? Yes, or you left it. Nice. I did. Okay. Yeah, and and, and what, what's kind of funny is, and this is you know, just to let the listeners know, it's not like after let's say it was eight or nine years of being in business, it's not like I stopped making mistakes. So when I bought these two locations, for example, um, I didn't factor in enough money to pay for the rebranding of the locations. So, you know, when you when you buy a salon, you know, and I'm paying a lot of money, it's like, you know, uh, and I figured that it was going to be a good deal. And then it's like, oh, shit, like I've got to pay. It's going to cost me 100 grand each to rebrand them, you know, signage the to go into the the inside of the salon, repaint them, fix the mistakes that the previous owner wasn't fixing and da, 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 da. And I didn't have that money. So I had to kind of scratch and, you know, delay the improvements and da, 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 da. But in the end, it, it, uh, it worked out, but it just took a lot longer than I was hoping for. Now, I, that, that brought me another point. Those little, like, imperfections in the shop, they didn't kill the business, right? So, like, you can deal with the little small stuff and still be a successful business. Of course. However going back to not deluding yourself and being honest, I couldn't charge a full price for the salon like I wanted to because I recognized that there were some issues with the salon, right? I guess. So it, it um it's not like it was there was there was um you know no negative consequences to having those issues. There were negative consequences to having the issues. 
Um, and, and I had to fix them as soon as I could reasonably fix them. Yeah. But not put yourself in a hole and <laughs> it's like weighing the options. It's like, you know, it's a, it's a balance. It, yeah, it's, it's a balance. You have to do what's smart and what makes sense uh, with, without ever diluting yourself, just trying to make yourself feel better. I got you. I got you. Now, jump forward to 2019. What's your total number of salons you have? 21. 21. Yeah. In 20 years. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yep. That's fantastic. Thank you. Now, uh, uh, but that, I love this part of the story because it's like this is a 20 year journey. And like, I think some people jump into like the second location, third location in year one and two. Yeah. And, that can that can kill your business off the jump, but yes, you sound like a very very patient person. <laughs> yes, and 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 I think that is that is lesson number one from my story, is what you just said, and I think that it's important because, you know, I talk to a lot of entrepreneurs these days because they reach out to me now, and I find a lot of people having a certain perspective that sounds like this. I, I'm going to open this location or I just opened this location and um, I need money to open five more. And I say, okay, so how long has this location been open? Five months. Okay. And how's it doing? Well, you know, it's okay, but once I have five more, it'll be doing better. Uh, why, how's that? Explain that to me. Right. And they're like, Oh, well, you know, I want to have, I want to have a big business. I want to be which all translates to, I want to be someone important and I want to be able to say that I have six locations or I have 10 locations or I have this, I have that, or, or I'm, I'm important. Right. It has nothing to do with your own sense of status. It has to do with the nuts and bolts reality of the business. And so people care more about um, what, what it says on their business card, what their Instagram profile says, what it sounds like when they tell a girl or a guy you know, at the bar, uh, when, they, when, when they're asked the question, what do you do? They care more about that than the actual um, nuts and bolts functioning of the business. And, and I think it does boil down to two things. Uh, you know, one is just our own sense of ego and two is patience. <laughs> that's, the, that's beautifully stated because I've made some mistakes just like you. Uh, or, or like what the person you was describing, I have made those mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but it's just, I think it's lessons. And it's, at the end of the day, if you learn from them, you know, that's all you can do is to keep growing. Yes. And like you said, admit Admit to yourself, hey, I screwed up. That's right. That's right. Well, and, and, and back to, and I'm going to keep repeating this, back to the brutal honesty of your situation. Yeah, I fucked up. And why did I fuck up? And um, let's, let's internalize this and, and keep it in our bank so I don't fuck up again. Because if again, I do it again, it might kill me. Yeah. <laughs> now, all the, for, for all the people that... that or looking to get into business, you have any, like say one or two books you recommend up the jump? Yeah. So let's see. Um, we have the principles book. Yeah. The principles <laughs> book, the, the principles book. Um, some of your listeners 
might might buy the principal's book and it's going to show up at their house and they're going to say what the fuck i mean this thing it, i want to say it's like 600 pages and it's very very high level from kind of from a from a stylistic standpoint you know ray dalio is one of the smartest guys walking on the planet earth so um you know, it, it's, it's a little difficult to digest. So a book that I highly recommend to a lot of people. Uh, okay, I got it. I got the two. Okay. No, number one is, uh, I think it's called The Silent Warrior. Or, okay. no, 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 I'm sorry. The Peaceful Warrior. There's a movie made after this book. It's a very short book. It's written from the standpoint of a story about a gymnast and I'm looking up as we're talking, let's see, peaceful warrior. Cause I want to make sure. Yeah. Okay. It's called the peaceful warrior and it's a, it's a book about a gymnast and uh, he has to overcome certain um, mindsets, you know, negative mindsets in order to get better at being a gymnast and, and in life in general. That one I recommend to everyone always and forever because it applies whether you want to be a better hairdresser, whether you want to be a better whatever, wife, husband, father, uh, mom, business person, entrepreneur, world beater, whatever. This one is a must read. Uh, number two is good to great. Okay. Good to great is, uh, uh, I forgot the author, but he's a very famous, uh, business author. He's written lots of books. His name is, I think is Jim, Jim something good to great. And this dude with a team of other people went out and studied, uh, hundreds and hundreds of businesses over the course of like 10 years or something. And, uh, in an effort to figure out what makes good organizations work versus uh, bad organizations or organizations that end up not working. What's the difference? And to my knowledge, nobody has ever done in a, a type of research this in depth into that question. And the answer that he comes up with is the opposite of what a lot of people automatically think from a stereotypical standpoint. Okay, sweet. Well, I, I got. I, I thank you because now I got two good books to go read. <laughs> yeah, without a doubt. And and by the way, Peaceful Warrior. I don't know if I said it, but they made a movie after it. Um, so I and, and I believe you could just watch the movie because the the points are translated as well in the movie as they are in the book. Oh, sweet. Well, that's good, yeah. son. So and I I know you were with about ten minutes left. Uh How's the podcast going? The hair game. Podcast is going great. So we're in. You having fun with it? I'm having a lot of fun. But you, you know, it's funny the the and you might experience this. I don't know how deep you are in your podcast, but uh, we're about two and a half years in now. We've done about 110 episodes or so. It's a weekly show, and 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 first, I'll just I'll get into what it is. Um, you know, we we want to educate, we want to inform, we want to inspire hairdressers everywhere. We have listeners all over the world, um, but they are focused in the United States. We have kind of a combination of 
um, interviews with the with the guests, influencers, etc., people in the salon industry who are making a change and making a difference, and generally our audience is interested in. And um, we have episodes that do other types of things. So, like, I'll get into um, things that are impacting the industry at the moment. So, for example, if you remember about a year ago, this uh, social media app called Vero came on the scene fast. And people started downloading this thing. It was the most downloaded thing um, on the Apple, uh, um, the App Store for a period of time. So I spent a lot of time digging into this app, this Vero app, figuring it out. And I did, did an episode for our listeners on the Vero app. What do you need to know about it? You know, should you be spending your time at it? Things like that. I also do this um, kind of segment that we call uh, what clients are thinking but won't tell you. And Donovan, who's my audiovisual guy, and I go out to the streets of L.A., Hollywood, Santa Monica, et cetera. And we ask people on the street uh, various questions as it relates to the salon industry. So, you know, what what do you dislike most about the salon? Like what would get you to go to the salon more? Um, Where do you buy your retail product? If you buy it on Amazon or Target, why do you do that? Why don't you buy it in the salon? Uh, you know, we ask a lot of questions like this. That's definitely one of our uh, more popular sorts of episodes. And so we, we try to mix it up and, um, and we have a lot of fun at it. Each episode, we try to focus on a different, you know, let's call it like a, a general topic. So, for example, today that we're recording this um, is Maggie Mulhern. Uh, my guest is Maggie Mulhern. She is the global beauty director for Modern Salon and has been for 40 years. She's a judge in a lot of hair shows. So I sat down with Maggie and I'm like, Maggie, what's the deal with the hair shows? Like, what do people need to know about hair shows? And so she goes into it. And a lot of people would probably benefit from knowing that not that many hairdressers enter hair shows. And so maybe it's worth entering you know, a hair show. Um, last week was a lot about patience. It was, um, it's something that a lot of the younger generation of hairdressers, I think would do a lot of benefit listening to like, what is the benefit of being patient in the steps that you're taking in your career? So those are the types of things that we do. Um, it's a, it's a weekly show. We, uh, it is both very fun. I would say it's one of the funnest things that I do. Uh, but at the same time, it, it is a duty that we take very seriously. And as most of your listeners know, if they are dutiful people, if they are parents or their husbands or wives or whatever, or they're very dutiful to their business or salon, you know, a duty is not always, um, y- y- uh, you know, satisfying the responsibility of a duty is not always fun, right? It, yeah. it requires a lot of rolling up your sleeves and it requires sacrifice, <laughs> You know, you've got to you've got to spend your Sundays the working on the podcast instead of doing something that you want to do that maybe is more fun. So it's it's both one of the funnest things that I do and a duty that we take very seriously, and we've been enjoying it. Well, that's awesome. So, what's the easiest way for them to find it? You can find the Hair Game podcast uh, on any podcast platform. The most popular one is. Uh, you know, the podcast app on Apple. There's, there's something about Apple people that makes them more avid podcast listeners. 
But really? even though most people have Android phones, it seems that, uh, that the Apple podcast app is still the most popular. If you've got an Android phone, the most popular sorts of uh, platforms are like Stitcher and Overcast and, and things like that. We're on Spotify, we're on iHeartRadio, we're, we're everywhere. Um, the, the Hair Game is also a YouTube channel. And so oh. we'll do a combination of you know, technical... Uh, education for hairstylists on the hair game uh, YouTube channel, as well as simply video aspects of the podcast. Nice. Well, I know we're about to wrap up. Uh, last question. What, if you could uh, tell the world like your greatest piece of knowledge or like the uh, greatest advice or, you know, just a tip to go along with, to end the show, what would it be? Oh, I think I'm going to reiterate something that I mentioned before um, that I think is you just you just can't deny uh, the the importance of it, and that is do your best to balance these two competing thoughts. One, be brutally honest about your situation, and two, always believe that in the end you're going to succeed. I love it, man. Thank you so much. I know you're a busy man, and you made my day. Uh, Thank you, Josh. <laughs> I really appreciate it. I've been looking forward to this. But I hope you have a good one. I hope you enjoyed the show, uh, everybody. Thank you. Thank you all very much. Thank you, Josh. Thank you for listening to The Josh Como Show. Brought to you by Color Map. Paint the dream. Changing the hair game forever.